Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Primary care physicians provide about half of all mental health services in the United States and prescribe more than half of all antidepressants. As a result, there is a great need for teaching these providers how to care for medically ill patients who have comorbid mental health issues. This article describes a six-hour educational intervention designed for family medicine residents and taught by psychiatry resident colleagues. Surveys were given before and after the curriculum to assess the family medicine residents' comfort levels, attitudes, and knowledge with regard to managing mental health issues. Results showed that family medicine residents who attended at least three sessions had greater comfort levels compared to their colleagues who attended less than three. This brief resident-led educational intervention positively impacted family medicine residents' comfort in managing patients with psychiatric comorbidities. Further research is needed to establish the sustainability of gains and the impact of such educational interventions on patient care outcomes. Tobacco use and drinking alcohol above recommended limits are among the leading causes of preventable death in the United States. However, these are modifiable risk factors with existing evidence-based interventions. Also, the movement to integrate behavioral health providers into primary care settings allows an opportunity for patients to work on their tobacco use and at-risk drinking with experts in health behavior change. The authors of this study surveyed primary care patients who recently screened positive for tobacco use and at-risk drinking to assess their willingness to engage in interventions for these behaviors. Participants reported that they would be more willing to engage in an intervention focused on helping them reduce their risk of medical problems than in services focused specifically on discussing cigarette or alcohol use. They were also equally willing to participate in a health behavior change intervention before, immediately following, or as a scheduled follow-up visit to a primary care appointment. These results suggest that primary care providers may maximize the impact of treatment recommendations for tobacco use and at-risk drinking by presenting behavioral health treatment as an opportunity to reduce risk of medical problems. Because the assessment of willingness to engage in an intervention was hypothetical, future research should look at how these different messages influence attending behavioral health appointments in primary care. This research was supported through grant funding by the VA Center for Integrated Healthcare Research Pilot Grant Program and by the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Academic Affiliations Advanced Fellowship Program in Mental Illness Research and Treatment. Childhood abuse is associated with suicidal ideation. Although factors predicting disclosure of child abuse have been examined, to date few studies have assessed the impact of disclosure of child abuse to child protection services on life-threatening behaviors such as suicidal ideation. The authors of this study examined the proportion of Canadian adults with a history of child abuse who disclosed the abuse to child protection services before age 16 years and the effect of that disclosure on lifetime suicidal ideation. 
The findings suggest that whereas social support is a protective factor against suicidal ideation among individuals with a history of child abuse, disclosure of child abuse to child protection services increases the risk of suicidal ideation. It is possible that those who disclose their abuse to child protection services did not receive the needed referral to treatment following the disclosure, and the abuse lingered on into adulthood. Negative reactions to disclosure may also lead some individuals to question the usefulness of disclosing their abuse to child protection services. Social support interventions that are effective in improving individuals' perception that support is available to them may help reduce suicidal ideation among those with a history of child abuse. Non-adherence to medications is a problem seen in most chronic diseases, including patients with schizophrenia. Several studies have shown that approximately half of all schizophrenia patients are non-adherent at some point, which may lead to relapse or even hospitalization. Although researchers have been studying this problem for several decades, it is surprising how little we still know about why so many patients are reluctant to use the medication prescribed to them. Based on quantitative and qualitative study results, as well as psychological models of decision-making, the authors created a model of medication adherence in schizophrenia patients. The model attempts to explain how patients decide whether or not to use their medication. It provides an overview of all the factors related to medication adherence and how they relate to each other. The authors discuss several topics, such as illness insight, medication efficacy, social influences, side effects, remission, and treatment response. This model may help clinicians understand adherence from a patient's perspective, explain why non-adherence is so prevalent and difficult to improve, and serve as a guideline in discussing medication adherence with patients. An episodic migraine is defined as 0 to 14 headache days per month. An episodic migraine may lead to medication overuse headache, which is an abnormal behavioral pattern of noncompliance. Anxiety, mood disorders, and disorders caused by psychoactive substances other than analgesics all have been reported in patients with medication overuse headache. The objective of this study was to evaluate the relationships between personality traits, anxiety disorders, and depressive disorders, and headache type. In this study, 55 patients with an episodic migraine and 50 patients with a medication overuse headache were recruited from neurology clinics. The patients were evaluated for anxiety, depression, and personality traits. The authors found significantly lower scores for reward dependence and self-transcendence in medication overuse patients compared to those with episodic migraine. No significant differences were found for anxiety or depression between the two groups. The authors hypothesized that people with lower reward dependence and self-transcendence scores might not be responsive enough to prescribe medication, pushing them to the frequent use of multiple drugs at higher doses. A multidisciplinary approach to management may be suggested for migraine patients. It also may be reasonable to consider behavioral therapy in conjunction with pharmacotherapy to improve comorbid conditions. 
Wernicke's encephalopathy is caused by thiamine deficiency and occurs predominantly in alcohol-dependent patients, but increasingly occurs in individuals who are malnourished due to other reasons, including medical and psychiatric disorders. The authors of this continuing medical education offering examine the management and frequency rate of Wernicke's encephalopathy in alcoholic and non-alcoholic patients admitted to a psychiatric hospital. The authors applied the diagnostic criteria of Kane and colleagues and gathered thiamine dosing data to identify cases of suboptimal management. Fifty-seven subjects met inclusion criteria. Of those patients, nine had clinical signs of Farnicke's encephalopathy and 36 were a high risk for developing the disorder. None of those patients received adequate doses of parental thiamine, and of those who were prescribed thiamine, the majority were prescribed oral thiamine at the traditional dose of 100 mg daily. The findings suggest that Wernicke's encephalopathy is underdiagnosed and undertreated and highlight the need for clarifying diagnostic criteria, identifying risk factors for thiamine deficiency, and improving awareness among physicians about diagnosis, prevention, and adequate treatment of the disorder in alcoholic and non-alcoholic patients. Serotonin syndrome is a rare condition that can occur in patients taking certain serotonergic medications, and symptoms can range from mild to fatal. Most reported cases occur among patients prescribed multiple serotonergic agents or those with considerable exposure to a serotonin-augmenting drug. Actual serotonin syndrome prevalence and incidents associated with the use of serotonergic agents remain unknown. The authors of this study used two databases to assess prevalence, incidence, and economic impact of serotonin syndrome with the use of serotonergic agents. Among over 60 million patient records, serotonin syndrome incidence and prevalence were low, as were severe serotonin syndrome events leading to emergency department visits or hospitalizations. There were no death reports. Among patients prescribed serotonergic agents, prevalence and incidence of serotonin syndrome decreased during the study period. The serotonin syndrome warning issued by the FDA in 2006 may have led to the initial increase in incidence due to heightened awareness as well as possible overdiagnosis. After the serotonin syndrome warnings were removed from electronic health records, serotonin syndrome incidence decreased gradually, as indicated in this study. More physicians may have a better understanding of serotonin syndrome and its association with the use of serotonergic agents, which could explain the decreasing number of serotonin syndrome cases. Following this reasoning, physicians may take preventative measures before prescribing serotonergic agents to patients taking multiple medications. Despite the low overall incidence of serotonin syndrome, the results show that relative risk and hospitalizations were higher in that subpopulation. This study provides practical information to help healthcare providers better understand the benefits and risks of prescribing serotonergic agents. This study was funded by ESI, Inc. Shooting oneself with a firearm is the leading method of suicide, accounting for a half of all such deaths. About two-thirds of the annual 33,000 gun-related fatalities in the United States are suicide, 
nearly 60 every day. Although most suicidal impulses are intense, they usually last for a short time. Thus, prompt intervention is important. Physicians should recommend that firearm access be removed from individuals with depression, suicidal ideation, drug abuse, or impulsivity, and those with a mental or neurologic illness. Read this informative brief report to find out how you might help suicide individuals in your practice. First-line treatments for bipolar disorder are associated with multi-system side effects, especially weight gain, that predispose patients to obstructive sleep apnea, among other complications. This article provides up-to-date information to help you screen for obstructive sleep apnea in patients with bipolar disorder, choose medications for bipolar disorder with consideration of metabolic factors, and initiate treatments that mitigate weight gain. What happens when a veteran who has always been in good health is faced with a life-threatening disease? In this issue of the Psychotherapy Casebook, Dr. Schuyler discusses how illness affects one's thoughts. As he points out, sometimes it is how one deals with these thoughts that matters, not the thoughts that come to mind. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.